Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. As we get deeper into Google's history, I wanted to get a unique perspective about the early days of Google, the early culture. So I reached out to the famous Google chef, Charlie Ayers. Chef Charlie was responsible for that legendary perk of the Googleplex, the free food, the dozens of different cafes and cafeterias that are on Google's campuses. So on today's episode, Charlie remembers joining Google when it was about 50 employees big, through its early growth, the IPO, and eventually to the point where he and his staff are serving thousands of meals a day. So please enjoy this fly-on-the-wall perspective of early Google with Chef Charlie Ayers. Charlie Ayers, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Thanks for having me. So usually when I begin with people's educational backgrounds on this show, it tends to be, oh, I was in computer science, electrical engineering, maybe occasional MBA or history major here and there. Uh, you're definitely the first chef that we've had on the show. So just kind of tell me about like getting a degree in um, the culinary arts. Like, is it, it It's a regular like four-year type of deal, or how does that work? Um, initially, when I went to Johnson Wales University in Providence, Rhode Island, um, it was a two-year program. This was in the mid-'80s. Since then, the school has realized that to really hone in and, and give the student uh, the education they need to be successful in the industry, they turned it into a four-year program. I myself did go – I went for four years because I got – you know, I received a double major while I was there in Providence – um, some food service administration and culinary arts. Um, and recently they just gave me an honorary doctorate from their Denver campus in 2014. Hmm. And, and is it, um, I'll, I'll use the maybe computer science analogy where, you know, they try to teach you every discipline, but then people tend to, uh, you know, hone in on a, a given programming language or something that they, they specialize in. Is it sort of like that where you learn every sort of cuisine and then sort of focus on the, the ones you like the best? Um, now it currently is. And back then that's not what they told you, but that's what you were going to do. Naturally, you're going to gravitate towards what, you know, you got into and, and made you happy. Um, so, yeah, they give you a, a general understanding of most major cuisines, and the rest was really dependent on how hungry you were to learn and doing a lot of research on your own, working for other chefs. And, you know, they encouraged you to work at, um, as much as you possibly could while attending school. So your uh, your early career, you're, you're working um, at, you know, in the kitchens of various restaurants, mainly on the East Coast? Uh, I. Up until 1989, and then I moved to the West Coast. What what brought you out there? Um, the market was going bad. In um, I was working at a very high end restaurant in Boston, and um, you know they told us that we were going to go from a five star restaurant down to a bistro caliber, and half of us were going to be unemployed. 
So I went to the uh, Academia Affairs and uh, Alumni Affairs Office at Johnson Wales and started looking for work and interviewed with a company over the phone, sight unseen. They never met me, and I never met them, only the recruiter at the career day, and uh, packed up my car and drove out west. Is it uh, is it by nature of, of being out in California that you start to uh, start to dabble in the world of, of celebrities? That's where I first started uh, meeting, you know, people of notoriety and celebrities, musicians, people like that. Yeah. And the your your association with the Grateful Dead. How did that begin? Uh, being a fan of the music first, mm. and I just ha- happened to be. Uh, in the right place at the right time and knew someone that um, also did work with them and couldn't make it to the gig and asked me to come in and fill in his shoes. And uh, they never asked him back. Is uh, are are celebrities more uh, uh, demanding than, than other clientele or uh, is are all clients kind of basically the, the same in terms of what they expect? Well, you know, we're all the same when it comes when it's time to eat, uh-huh. regardless of what your status might be. Some celebrities are completely down to earth and fantastic and just really approachable and easy. And others, they just, you know, they I think that's why they become celebrities, because they want that special attention and that, you know, what other people don't want. Um, you know, like one of the first times I cooked for Robin Williams, I asked him how he enjoyed the food. And he gave me a, a total comical re- reply was, I loved it as a human being. <laughs> and, and, you know, how, how else would you say it? You know, how else would you respond to that? And I, I was like, I've never had anyone say that to me before. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, you know, some of them don't want to be bothered. And that, that's one of the things I, I have learned is when it's time to eat, you leave them alone. And I think they appreciate that more than being fawned over and, and uh, you know, wanting pictures and things like that, I never, I never do that because I know that's not why they're here to see me. If they want to engage with me, you know, I'll reciprocate and engage back with them, but I'll never ask them for autographs or photos or things like that. So, getting into the uh, the Google story here, and please correct me if I have uh, the the dates or the chronology wrong, but at some point in 1998, you interview with Sergey Brin because he's looking to hire a, a chef for Google. And this this is 1998, so Google's just suddenly become a company, right? Yeah, when I first um, met with them, they were still over the bicycle shop in Palo Alto on University Avenue. Mm-hmm. And when I went there to meet them, you know, I first of all, I really didn't know what a search engine was. My girlfriend at the time was like, you know, it's like Lycos or Alta Vista. <laughs> those companies aren't around anymore right. um and uh you know i was more interested in it being a monday through friday gig and having some time again because i was working for you know a personal chef for a family and wasn't the best gig very demanding um and i went upstairs to the office and it you know it looked like anything other than a place where business was being conducted <laughs> a lot of toys going on and i, I had not met larry yet and I didn't know who Larry was or what he looked like. And apparently I saw Larry initially when he bounced by on one of those balls that have like a, a handle on it, like a child would bounce up and down on, you know, and, uh, 
I was like, okay, it's my first, you know, initial meeting with this company and they're all playing around. And so when I met with them and they told me what they wanted, I was confused. I said, well, why would you want all that when you have all these restaurants on the ground level in this town that I've opened many of them over the years? And, you know, Sergey in his very Russian matter of fact way was no, no, no. One day we will be a big company far away from a downtown environment where we need a chef because our employees will be in a remote location. Right, because what are, they, what are they, 20 people at that point or something? Yeah, there was like 18 of them, yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, I, and you know, one of the last things said, we, you know, we're looking for a chef that's world travel. And, and, you know, so there was a lot of things that in his mind that they wanted that I didn't meet, you know, and I, was, I left saying, no, well, I'm not going to get that job. Back to working for the devil. Um, and, uh, four weeks later, I get a phone call saying, Hey, we have an actual headquarters. We've moved. We have more people. We have a kitchen. We'd like you to come by and try out and we'll give you a call. Just keep it on your radar. Right. Because they, um, they actually had like a, a cook off or a cook off, I guess, <laughs> to, to select yeah. the, the final chef, right? Yeah. They, they had 25 other applicants, candidates before me. Um, so when it was my time to come down there and do it, you know, they gave me very little notice and I had to scramble and make it happen and call in sick to the family I was cooking for. And that just, you know, got them bent and they weren't happy about that. I had to do all my prep in my, on my like ironing board, the use of my prep table in this little studio apartment that I had near the home that for the family I cooked for. Um, and thank God I did all that prep ahead of time because when I got down there to the to kitchen, it was an antiquated, old, broken-down kitchen that hadn't been used in many years. So a lot of things didn't work properly or didn't work at all. And the place was filthy from all the previous candidates that tried out because chefs don't clean up after themselves. They always have someone who does that. Mm -hmm. So they left and left their mess behind. I'm opening the refrigerators. It's like a biology project, you know, blue mold is nasty. It's dirt. So I've, I spent a majority of my time cleaning the space before I could even start cooking, and preparing. And some of the Google employees that were checking on me, that kept coming through the cafe that they hadn't been used, used at that time because they had no need for it. You know, they kept, I could see they were looking at me like, is this guy going to cook or is he just going to clean? So by the time they came back, I had lunch all ready to go. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I did that other candidates didn't do, I'm certain of, is I found out what they were eating. Mm. I, you know, a girl I was dating at the time, she worked with a guy whose wife worked for PR at Google. I took them out to dinner. I, you know, juiced her for information. Like, what is the company eating? What's the culture like? And she said, well, we eat a lot of whole foods. We eat a lot of sushi. We eat a lot of vegetarian food. We eat a lot of tacos, a lot of California cuisine. I'm like, oh, great, you know. So I, I created an eclectic menu reflective of the information she gave me. So when it was time for the Googlers to come through and eat, I hit a home run. And they were all, every one of them was elated. And they're like, oh, my God, this is the type of food we eat. How did you know? You know, and just I remember, again, Sergey was one of the last people that came through. And by that time, I realized who Larry was after I'd done a little research on them. Um. Sergey comes up to me at the very end, and uh, he says, whomever you work for now is going to be very disappointed when you leave. <laughs> I was like, thank God, I've got, the, I've got the job. Well, their 
notorious for going into analysis paralysis. Mm -hmm. They still are to this day. They didn't call me back for another two months because they had to make this whole decision and everything. And, and then, again, when they called me, it was in the 11th hour on their end, calling me on a Thursday, asking me, you know, or tell, you know saying, we'd like to off, off you the position. Will you accept? Blah, 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 blah. We want you to start this Monday. Fantastic, but I can't do that. I have a reputation here in the Valley, and I, I have to leave this family professionally. Back and forth, back and forth about you know, being professional and then wanting me. Finally, they say to me, look, do you want the job or not? I'm like, yes. And they're like, be here Monday. <laughs> so, you know, I'm hanging up the phone, thinking to myself, I'm burning a bridge. Um, how do I do this as gracefully as possible without this woman decapitating me, the woman that, you know, of the house, the family mm -hmm. I cooked for. Mm -hmm. And that was uh, the very demanding, wealthy Silicon Valley types. Um, planned out everything ahead of time, the kind of people they were, and uh, no spontaneity or creative juices allowed to be used there whatsoever. It was pure utilitarian work. She made me buy cookbooks and told me real chefs use cookbooks. Cooks just make things up. <laughs> like, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> all right. So she made me buy hundreds of cookbooks, spend lots of money, had it all there in the li my library that I worked out of in the kitchen. And I go that day to give her my notice. And we already had things planned out, menu already penciled and prepped on. She comes stomping in and she was a trophy wife to a very wealthy Silicon Valley executive that, whose name I still never use. Um, she slaps down a, a pad of a list of people. She said, 40 people tonight, Texas barbecue. Be ready, mister. Hmm. She was angry that I had called out sick and she knew the waters were getting a little rocky and something was going on. So she was turning up the heat on me. So before I can even give her my notice, she just stomps away, hops into the Jaguar, drives away. And I can, everything was on closed circuit television there. So I could watch everything. And I knew they could watch me. So I would see the car drive away and the gates closed to the compound. I start cleaning out all my equipment and my books and everything, get everything loaded, click, clean out my office and driving away. I throw the keys to the groundskeeper, Juan. I'm like, bye-bye, Juan. I can just see him shaking his head like, oh, there goes another one. <laughs> so, that evening. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. That evening, the sheriff's come to my house looking for, I'm like, what, what's going on? They're like, well, so-and-so and so-and-so claims you stole cookbooks. I'm like, oh, let me get you those Amazon receipts. And they checked everything. I'm like, we've been dealing with this lady for 25 years. Just got to do our follow-up. We have, we believe you. And went back to celebrating for my new job. Yeah, it seemed my like that, that was fortuitous timing for you. So, okay, at uh, when you join up with Google, they're, they're in uh, Mountain View at this point, right? Yes. And so that was pro the, the, the first of the Googleplexes, I guess. Um, and you said that there, the facilities weren't really <laughs> ideal when you start off. When you start off, it's just you? It, it was just me in the very beginning. And, yeah, for the first probably month and a half, maybe two months, and I, I had to ask for more help. And I remember Larry looking at me like, why do you need more help? It's only 50 people. I was like, have you shopped, prepped, cooked, and cleaned up after 50 people twice a day, five days a week? And he's looking at me, I'm like, no, you haven't. I'm like, I need help. 
so yeah, they gave me some help in the beginning, just me and a dishwasher and eventually a crew, but it grew slowly. In the very beginning, they made me use Webvan. Mm. Um, they wanted me to really support e-commerce and wanted me to go through very unconventional methods and ways of sourcing the materials to take care of them. And it just it wasn't working on my timeline and what I needed. And I was like, can we do it my way, the way I know that works? And then when we started actually you know, using vendors and the same type of vendors I used in all the restaurants that I've been operating for years in the, in the area. Well, that's, that's actually interesting. They, so did, how much guidance did they give you in the sense of, did they give you a budget or did they say, this is the sort of food that we want or, or did they leave you free to, to decide all that for yourself? Um, I was given very big, wide, vague parameters um, to roam around in and do what I did because they, di they didn't know what I was doing and they trusted me and they went purely by the food that I cooked for them. I don't think they even did background checks or else they would have known the family I was cooking for was, was anyhow. Um, they were desperate and, you know, they were a startup and they were kind of flying by the seat of their pants, not knowing really what they wanted. And you would find out what they wanted after the fact. You know, sometimes they're vague. Said, "Well, I didn't like this." I'm like, "What didn't you like about it?" And they couldn't understand or articulate what they didn't like about it, other than it was food they hadn't had yet. So it was a lot of things were very new for them. Um, but in the very beginning, I remember Larry and Sergey telling me, "There's only three people in this company that need to be happy: you and us. And if you're happy, the rest of the company will be happy." So. They pretty much left me on my own and, and allowed me uh, freedom of creativity and, and reign to do whatever I wanted and, and, and to do what I knew, but to do was hospitality and, you know, pro provide a, a, a warm environment with great food and uh, ambience of music and entertainment all within the workplace. So I was doing things that no one was doing in the Silicon Valley. And, and, and up, up until the last month I was there at the company, Larry disallowed me from ever visiting any other companies and seeing what the other chefs and the other corporations were doing. And no one had chefs. Everyone had, you know, they were all in bed with the devil with Bon Appetit. Mm. Um, <laughs> so, so we were, a, we were a disruptor, you know, like we were doing it all on our own and, and they were determined to do it on their own and be different. And, you know, giving their chefs equity in the company, incentivizing them to, you know, this is a, something bigger than you. And this can be a catalyst for your, your life to do anything you want afterwards providing everything goes the way that we want. Um, so, you know, rarely did I ever hear the word now. You know, I was told in the very beginning, you just do what you do, do it the right way, and you never hear from anyone, you know you're doing it the right way. If no one's bothering you. Um, and they really scaled the company on my ability to keep up with, with cooking. Um, you know, eventually we outgrew our space and we had to uh, lease a, a big uh, 18-wheeler catering vehicle that, like, we'd use on the road with the musicians. You know, it had a full kitchen inside and, and dish room and walk-in refrigerators and everything, and we plopped that down right in front of the headquarters across 18 of the prime parking spots before you walk into the lobby <laughs> and, you know, penetrated the, the ground and put water and electric and gas and everything through there, all without permitting. <laughs> and, you know, I was like, I'm going to get in trouble for this, Larry. And he's like, don't worry about it. I'm like, I'm worried about this. Is my name on everything, not yours. You know, this is my business. 
eventually authorities and everyone found out what we were doing, but literally the food smelled so good when you're walking in, I would jokingly say to people, I'm like, you can literally smell, smell the success here, can't you? You know, people walking in the lobby, like, what is for lunch? It smells so good. So we, you know, figured out the kitchen space and then they're, they're like, well, what are we going to do? We have no more dining space because we were packing in the buildings until we could move into the new spaces. And, you know, there was a lot of things that we did very rogue-like at the time, you know, where the only companies that acted and behaved that way prior to that was Apple back in the day. So we were like the, the new pirates of the Silicon Valley, just doing whatever we needed to do to get it done and uh, paying for it later. So eventually we, we ended up leasing a big giant tent and dropping it down in the middle of the, of the quad and disallowing the other tenants that were sharing the space in the same campus from going in there. We made deals with them like once a month, you can come in here and, and eat as our guest because we've infringed on your, on your uh, common area as well. Um, but we were just absorbing all the old spaces, all in that area and building out kitchens where there weren't supposed to be kitchens and, you know, old phone rooms and data rooms that I converted into because I needed it because we were growing so rapidly and we, and they all had to be band-aids or quick fixes. They weren't permanent because eventually we were going to be at the big space at, at 1600 amphitheater parkway um, where I, there was a big giant kitchen there with multiple restaurants and mo- you know, more space than I thought at the time that I needed, but we outgrew that very quickly. Um, let me uh, let me jump in here and, and start to ask you about, sure. um, you know, you have this privileged pr- position of observing Google <laughs> sort of from the outside, but also as an insider. But so when you join, um, I, I think you were 33. So you were probably one of the oldest people working there at the time, right? I was employed 53. But yes, I was one of the oldest people. OK, right. Well, I was saying I, you might have been 33 years old, but I, I, so. Oh, but, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. OK, sorry. So. Um, Google famously is this company that that really venerated the engineer as the rock star and the you know the focus of the company. Um, I was curious uh, how were how were you treated? How were your uh, workers treated uh, generally by the Googlers? Um, I was treated very well. You know, they treated me on the same level as any other executive in the company. Um, I worked physically much harder than any of them. Um, we were all, all of our, all my staff, all the original kitchen employees I had, that all became Google employees. So I had 11 people in the beginning. After everything was done and said before I left, they were all Google employees. Everyone else was contracted, but we, they were all treated very well with respect. Um, had the accessibility to all the same perks, you know, going to masseuse or if we wanted to go and play hockey or go and spend time going on a nature walk with the rest of the engineers and things like that. Just a lot of what they did wasn't realistic and applicable to what we did because ours was a very laborious task and a lot of physical labor and planning and, well, theirs is, you know, not. So they had a lot of downtime and a lot of them did their work in the evening hours when no one was around. Um, but always treated, you know, there was never that dichotomy of the us and them, um, and that was one of the things that was amazing about that company that at lunchtime you could see the mail girls sitting down right next to Eric Schmidt sitting right down at one of my dishwashers on their break right next to, um, you know, some of the early like uh, Craig Silverstein, people like that. 
know, and there was none, none of that. It was, we were just a big family. Were, was there any quirkiness to maybe software engineers or Googlers in particular when it came to like um, the cuisine they liked and didn't like? Uh, you said you, you mentioned earlier, like trying to challenge them and introduce them to new cuisines. Just uh, how did how did they deal? How, how did they deal with the various things you were offering them? Well, the, my my demographic for the most part were all young men in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Maybe there was like six maybe there was six women in the company. Um, so and they were all in their twenties and they had tremendous appetites because they were into sports and very active. So their their metabolism they they could eat like no other. Uh, but a lot of them were very used to what they had in college and dorms, and so they were into the sustenance level of just eating to survive, not for the pure pleasure of eating and enjoying cuisine. So there was, you know, there was a lot of requests for, you know, meat and potato type of meals. And uh, some of my food was too eclectic and some of it uh, was challenging their, their taste buds. And so there was a, you know, there was a little bit of, I had to give them what they wanted, but there was stuff that they wanted that I wouldn't make. So that's what I, I wasn't brought in to do. They specifically told me, we don't want to see you making food right now. We can do it for special events every now and then. But they, they didn't want to see the common junk type of food that were often found in cafeterias throughout the Silicon Valley that was really making many engineers a little roly-polies. Um, so there was most, a lot of vegetables, a lot of vegetable um, recipes, a lot of vegetarian cuisine, a lot of vegan cuisine. Long before all this became in vogue, I was already practicing that from my past history with working with Whole Foods. Um, but, you know, I, a lot of my equipment in the very beginning was I had, had limited equipment, so the, the menu was dictated by the equipment I had to work with. I remember one day one of them said to me, do you know how to grill meat? So I was like, yeah, of course I do. Well, can we have something grilled? I said, no, we don't have a grill. <laughs> the, engineer, the engineers went and bought themselves a grill and gave it to me, and they're like, here you go. You got to grill. So, so we ended up grilling, you know, having grilled meats and, and fish and poultry and things like that on a regular basis until we outgrew that. And that thing ended up just crumbling because, you know, they bought something cheap at the hardware store. It wasn't, uh, you know, restaurant, industrial, commercial grade. Um, but, yeah, there was a lot of challenges. And I, I, and I would see a lack of attendance on some certain menus in some days and, and I realized there would be groups of them that wanted to go out for In-N-Out Burger. And they wouldn't tell me. I said, like, you, you guys need to let me know. Why? I said, well, when 50 of you leave to go have food and the company is, you know, 200, 300 people, that makes a big difference in my, what I have left over. Mm. You know, and I try not to have leftovers. And they really didn't like me to, as Larry would say, stop reconditioning the food. I was like, Larry, this is what they teach you in my industry is to, you know, cross utilize leftovers and everything is money and, and don't throw anything out. And it's like, well, give it to the needy. Don't we don't want it. He didn't want it. So that was my challenge was like, I'm going to cross utilize this and you're never going to know. And that became a little game where some of the engineers like, is this that thing from the other day? And did you turn into that? I'm like, did I? So it always had them thinking and, and they realized. He knows, he knows what he's doing, and he made, you know, very good food for them that no one was making back then because I, I cared about them, and I knew a little bit of something about each and every one of them from the, each engineer coming by a couple times a day for 90-second conversation, 
So sometimes I had guys that are, you know, 10 people back, back in line, and they're reading the menu, and I could see their facial gesture, and I'm like, oh, they're not digging this menu. Mm. But I knew what they did like, so I could pull something out of my backup or, of inventory or something that I was going to serve a couple of days from then that was already prepped, and I'd have that ready for them right when they got up there. And the grins on their faces, like, how did you know? I was like, I'm reading my customer, and I'm seeing their facial expressions as they're reading the menu, and yours didn't look happy like everyone else's, and I know what you like to eat, so here you go. So that sort of thing really spoke to many of the engineers on a level they had never experienced before, either coming from the workforce or coming from the you know school dining facility where now their needs were being met. They're like, oh, this guy listens to us. He may not give us what we want all the time, but he's, he's fishing for information through the conversations that he has with us. So there was, and in the beginning, it was easy to do that. So there would be times I would intentionally make special menus for certain people that were extremely introverted and had a hard time interacting with everyone else downstairs in the, in the cafe. That's how a lot of the engineers are. Um, so they, they would want to, they didn't want to socialize with everyone. They would come and get the food and take off. So I always wanted to know what was the deal with these people? Why were they not, you know, so I would intentionally do these sort of things and to watch their face and, and see the reaction. And then for them to come up and, engage with me which what they would never do and just smile and tell me how much they enjoyed the food you know i was like awesome i'm doing what i'm supposed to be doing i'm, I'm getting through to all of them and creating this culture and eventually it was a, you know we would jokingly say the company that eats together is the company that stays together is the company that makes money together mm-hmm. because it was such a cross-pollination and ability and a chance that no one was doing at the time ever before where you had sales sitting down with engineers and Traditionally, those two don't get along whatsoever. Now they were able to exchange thoughts and ideas like human beings civilly over breaking bread. You know, what, what is more real than that? You know, rather than sitting in a boardroom and arguing back and forth and with a whiteboard and, and charts and everything like that. And I would close down food service between lunch and dinner just to give our, my team a, a moment to breathe and get ready for dinner. But I always left the soup and bread area open. And I soon saw that was an area that they loved to gather around in groups when they were trying to figure something. They all come down for soup and talk about whatever and being that fly on the wall again in there. And they're just, you know, I had signed an NDA, so they were perfectly comfortable with speaking in front of me because it was as much my company as theirs. But learning and watching how they would interact and work with each other, and sometimes they didn't come to a resolution for you know, weeks and they would, you know, prolong projects from launching where their department had started to say, well, why don't you go down and watch what Charlie does? He launches every day on time, twice a day, no backups, no excuses. He's always ready. Why can't you guys be ready? And some of them came to the, the realization is that they didn't use their time efficiently <laughs> and they didn't have a driver, a manager that was on top of them and doing constant follow-up because they were doing whatever. So it, some of that internal engineer management kind of changed where they don't like to be managed. You know, they don't like to be told what to do whatsoever. You know, they're always the most intelligent person in the room. Even if there's a room full of them, each one of them thinks they were smarter than the other. Um, and I also learned that a regular engineer that codes cannot fix your computer. You need to call systems ops and have them come <laughs> up and fix your computer because they will screw it up. Um, well, also, 
you, you mentioned being want- a, a fly on the wall and observing this. So, like, uh, if I asked you to describe the culture in, like, 99, 2000, is it, is it stressful? Is it, like, we're having fun every day, the sky's the limit? Like, what was the mood and the culture like? They were having a great time. All the time. I mean, they had a... I mean, you know, Craig Silverstein had his little bread parade every day. He made bread a couple times a day, and they had this big procession and, you know, glorifying the bread that had been made out of the the, the machine in the micro kitchen. Um, you know, they had, back then, it was what was called Sports Thursdays. So there was no meetings that went on on Thursdays. It was, you know, whether you're going out playing golf or running or whatever physical activity they encouraged. And they encouraged the type of activity where it was friendly competition. So our, our hockey that went on in the, in the parking lot, you know, the Google hockey roller hockey team, you know, where we all had our jerseys. If you want to go downstairs and play and opportunity to get your impressions out and side check Larry or Sergey, it happened quite a bit. Um, so there was that, you know, it, it, it had still had very, university feel to it because so many people were so fresh out of school that they were still trying to keep that type of culture a uh, young active high energy group um and it, it very much was that way all throughout that time because it was something that was important to larry and sergey and it trickled down from the top um so yeah it, you know, they had a big giant chart that they created and they used crayons with it to chart the history of, of the company and the growth and their different um, benchmarks of achievement and uh, areas of the company that, like they had like Charlie's first meal. You know, um, you know, I started with the company on November 17th, and then you know we did a big Thanksgiving thing right before Thanksgiving, and so, and and then they they showed how the growth of the company just was going up like a hockey stick after that point. They they really would use me as a recruiting tool to get people to understand this is how you're going to be treated and fed. And it's not the common. We were already starting to get a lot of ink from different publications and media outlets about what we were doing and how it was different. Um, so they, they still had that. There was a lot of higher energy in the company because we were again, disruptors doing things no one else was doing at the time and taking business away from other companies and, and watching these companies fold and go under because they couldn't compete with what we were doing. Well, and you're contributing a lot to how the culture evolves too, because, you know, things like the TGIF events, you're catering, and then you, you kind of even move into hiring the entertainment for it. Uh, t- tell me a little bit about like the, the extracurricular stuff too. I remember the very first TGIF I did with them, the young lady that I became friends with and shared a, a office space with Angie, she was responsible for doing all that in the beginning. And I could tell she didn't like doing it. And, and she's like, yeah, this is what I put out and you know, they can take it or leave it. And you know, I'm going home. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I got it from here. And I'm like, where's the alcohol? She's like, they don't drink. They're all a bunch of nerds. I'm like, really? I've seen nerds drink. I'm like, if we put some beer out there. I guarantee they'll drink it. She's like, Larry, sorry. It won't. I'm like, I'm not concerned about them. So I started bringing in beer and I brought an assortment of, of microbrews and played it safe and I just got three cases, but it was mostly very much a kid-friendly type of TGIF. Um, 
big bowl of pistachio nuts and a lot of things that yet I hadn't realized at the, at the time that you had to do something to in order to consume it and enjoy it. Many of those items were untouched because they had to do something to it to consume it to enjoy it. So I was like, huh, I have to make something that's completely handheld and totally manipulated that they can just pop in their mouth and have complete gratification from or else they won't interface with it. And I learned that's how they work and that's how they eat and the different snacks that I had to make and, and acquire and make sure that they always had. Because I, I was learning, like, how do you work? How do you eat like this? And seeing that, oh, this is, this is their thing. They love cereal. Um, I had a very bizarre association with cereal in that company and created a wall of different types of cereals and our own mock labels, of all the different brands. Like we had Lario's instead of Cheerios and we had... Uh, crunchy googlies and uh, and you know like we had porn flakes instead of corn flakes and that you know pick different pictures like porn flakes had matte cuts on it with a couple of different <laughs> girls in, in a hot tub with them you know but they had but the girls faces had a different engineer's face so it was really bizarro and there was just a lot of joe shriver who was one of the user interface engineers that worked under marissa Mayer, made up all these different labels for me for my different he was in on the joke and loved it. And a lot of it was poking funds at fun at different Googlers. And they, they, they're like, when do I get my face on a cereal label? Um, so they, you know, it became a cultural thing. Um, there was a lot of zaniness and bizarro weird things that went on there that was completely encouraged and never stifled. Um, unless it was someone's, you know, health and well being was endangered. But other than that, you know, and, I attribute a lot to Larry and Sergey. You know, they were visionaries in a lot of ways. Where, you know, the same way that Whole Foods was, Whole Foods learned to get the most out of your employees, allow your employees to be themselves. The same way it was at Google. You know, so I had this history of working with two companies prior to that that were very freewheeling. You know, Whole Foods and the Grateful Dead, now working for Google. All, you know, you allow your employees to be themselves. We'll get the most out of our employees. Larry's dad used to run the Grateful Dead Hour in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Right, I think when I he was that. a kid. Yeah, and I found that out through his uncle. And I was like, "Are you serious?" You he's like, every time he comes down here and sees that tapestry and hears that music, he thinks of his dad, and that's a great thing. And then Larry comes up and he's like, "Why are you telling him this?" He's like, "Because he needs to know this." So Larry had that spirit in him, you know. And I would joke with him. I was like, "Yeah, put down the abacus, Larry. Get on the tie dye. Let's go to the show." Um, so I, I think that, you know, when you have that type of open background growing up, it, 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 uh, it allows you to be that business owner or manager or operator or founder that really bewits um, your employees and allows them to be the best that they can be. Um, do you have any particular memories of, of the IPO day? I think you I think you put together an ice cream party to, to celebrate. Yeah, we uh, we had a meeting about that and how we were going to celebrate, and we were fearful of, you know, the media and everyone looking at us as, like, being opulent and over the top and just doing something completely wasteful. And, and uh, we are like, you know what, let's do something really wholesome that they'll never expect. Let's do an ice cream social. So we hired a couple of the different Ben and Jerry shops in the Bay Area. I think we bought one guy from the um, 
San Francisco and one guy up from San Jose and they set up all these ice cream bars and that's how we celebrated that day was with ice cream sundaes and uh, cones and scoops and just a you know regular regular day at uh, at the Googleplex. So I believe uh, at the height of your tenure, um, it's expanded to you know ten different cafes or so across the, the campus, and maybe 150 people working under you. Yes, spread out between all the different um, mm-hmm. uh, restaurants, cafes. Yes. Um, serving probably what four or five thousand meals a day. It was. It was looking. It was starting to be around that because um, they didn't have as big a uh, attendance in the evening hours because we would hold dinner back a little bit later to get rid of that population of people that were there just to have a meal for free. You know, if, if you can, you will. Right. Um, I've always heard that about, about the, the Google cafes is that there's so many people that that's sort of like the, the draw of visiting the Googleplex is coming to the cafes. Oh, it is. And, and back in the day, it was, you know, how do you sneak onto campus and ghost in behind someone that didn't, you know, didn't watch behind them that doesn't have a badge and get a free meal. That was like one of the big challenges. Um, and then with some people that just didn't know when they we're working on, this was the old campus where we had other companies on the same property as us. And they just knew there was a cafe there. And those employees didn't say it's only for Google employees. And you would figure out who it was when they came up when they're trying to give you money for food. And I was like, oh, you don't belong here, do you? I was like, what do you mean? I'm like, this is all free. This is all for Google employees. It's a total, oh, I didn't. total tell, yeah. I was like, no worries. You got in. Enjoy. Um yeah, that was the thing back then. So you, the, you know, sorry, go ahead. I would say it was one of the most sought out places to go and eat in the Silicon Valley that you couldn't get a reservation to. <laughs> so you, um, you leave in 2005. Uh, um, was it, were you just ready to move on or, or what, what made you uh, head for greener pastures? Um, the comp, you know, there was many different things going on. Um, part of it was they wanted to bring in, have 10 executive chefs, and I had explained to them the whole chain of command and the hierarchy in the kitchen, the data back to Napoleon, and I said, there's not two CEOs. Why would you have 10? You know, I said, you're going to have lots of problems. That was one thing, and it was just more, I wasn't cooking anymore. Uh, they were, you know, doing a lot of administrative stuff. Media would come on property like, bring out Charlie, put him in front of a station, make him look like he does everything. Um, my health was diminishing a little bit. And I had just gotten married and and uh, I was wanting to spend, and I was with the company for, you know, almost since the beginning, I was getting a little burnt out and they hadn't created the, the sabbatical program yet. It took me leaving because they're like, at least he didn't leave kicking and screaming. He left on his own terms. Um, and I left in very good terms with them. I, I just wanted to do my own thing, and I knew I was going to do something else after Google. Um, I have always wanted to have my own restaurant, so that was, I was using my experience and opportunity to work with them to, you know, catalyst myself into the next thing. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm still great terms with them, and they brought me back a few years ago to do back end advisory role for them, and still work with different offices and they'd send me over to Google Germany to cook for their different top sales advertising clients over there. And, um, 
Yeah, but that's, you know, that's what it ended up becoming. It's just more than I wanted to do. And uh, I wanted to get back to smaller, realistic numbers that weren't in the thousands every day. Well, and I think people know that, you know, you, you did go on to, you know, uh, start your own restaurants, cafes, cookbooks, all sorts of things like that. Are, are you, <laughs> do you remain surprised at the level of uh, celebrity that being the Google chef has afforded you? I, I, yes, I, I'm still surprised by it. And even to this point now where, you know, to me, I feel like the term has jumped the shark and it's not the same where I've actually found out it's a term that some kids use, like uh, you've been Google chef or whatever. If you look at it on like different social medias, um, I had found that out through my ex-wife's son who told me this. Well, like, look, you're, it, you're, what does it mean? Oh, we're like, people are like doing something with their food or whatever and some of it's positive, some of it's not positive, but a lot of it is just, you know, younger younger generation using it. Um, some of it disrespectfully, some of it just as an adjective. Huh. Um, it, it was interesting to look it up and, and see all that on just different Instagrams and stuff. And um, But, you know, right now, I, you know, I still get work from that. You know, I'm consulting and working with a robotics firm right now where we create robots that replace restaurant workers mm. um, and developing recipes and everything like that. And um, it's being received very well and it's the future and it's not going to put people out of work because the food still needs to be manipulated and prepped to be loaded into the machines in order for it to be distributed. Um, but I think with robotics and AI, there's going to be a lot more robot repairmen out there in the future. So it's going to create a new, a new uh, profession and Another company that I'm working with, a, a company called Wiseline, um, they approached me as well because of my you know, past being the Google chef and doing for them what I did for them, did for Google so long ago, um, but they're based out of Mexico. So it still it brings me a lot of work, and I, I get a lot of speaking engagements at a lot of universities, um, and most of them are very conservative schools where they bring me in as the wild card. Mm. and to tell their, you know, soon-to-be graduates there's other ways of making a living and not inside this little box that we as a university or society tells you how you have to be successful. Um, yeah, so it, it continues to do so, and I'm, I'm always happy. Well, uh, Chef, Charlie, Chef Charlie, thanks for coming on the, the show, and... Uh remembering your career but also um giving us uh some great insight on uh what google was like uh, when it was young my pleasure if this is the first time you're listening to this podcast please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice there's plenty more great internet history where that came from and if you're a longtime listener then you know what to do to help us out rate and review us on itunes because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at nethistorypod, and my personal Twitter is at brianmcc. Thanks for listening.